Hello from ABA Mid-Year Meeting 2018 in Vancouver, Canada. I'm Lawrence Coletti. I'm Cassie Stubbs. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here in Vancouver. It's a little less gray and drizzly here in the wintertime here, but like yesterday, the hospitality is still warm, so we carry on. And today, joining me is uh, Miss Cassandra Stubbs from the ACLU. Hello. Good morning. How's uh, how'd everything go today? I, it was great. There are a lot of questions. It was a very interesting discussion. So, it, obviously, a very sobering topic. We're, we're going to be talking about uh, death penalty and you know your your event. It was. Uh, do you remember the the title of your event? Uh, it was the North American Death Penalty Experience. Okay, gotcha. And so that that was the that crossover. So it was going to be involving kind of a perspective from different nations, primarily Canada and Mexico, right? Yes. I guess my first question for you before we get started, obviously, you know, we know that you work for the ACLU, but you're also an attorney. And so maybe tell us a little bit about your career. Where do you work? What do you do? So I'm the director of the ACLU Capital Punishment Project. That's a national project that works uh, against the death penalty. We do that through a combination of direct litigation as well as advocacy efforts and amicus briefing in state and the United States Supreme Court. And so transitioning to your topic, uh, it just in general terms, I know that there was a lot, and we're going to get into it, there was a lot of uh, bullet points to, to, to get through, but uh, what was it in general about the comparison contrast? Well, the comparison is is pretty quick in the sense that both Mexico, which um, has really in the 1900s was never a, a major death penalty user, but both Mexico and Canada had fully abandoned the death penalty by the 1970s, although their formal abolition came, came later, they had stopped executions, whereas the United States um, initially was on the same downward trajectory that Canada was, uh, but had a very different experience. After um, the Furman decision when the United States Supreme Court abolished the death penalty, a few years later, the Supreme Court brought it back. And in fact, by 1977, the United States was executing again. Um, and so we've seen in the last several decades in the United States, we've seen a pattern of use of the death penalty that is unique um, in North America. So, you know, very interesting uh, topic today. Obviously, a lot of social consequences. Uh, we pseudo recently, a few years ago, I guess, uh, pseudo recently in terms of the network's history, we did a show called Firing Squads and Lethal Injections. Is today's death penalty cruel and unusual? And so, uh, special guest, we had Mr. Ronald Kiney joining us, who was nine days from his execution uh, via the gas chamber when the actual murderer confessed to the crime and obviously subsequently he was exonerated but you know we had Mike Farrell who of course played BJ Honeycutt on MASH big uh, anti-death penalty advocate and we had uh, Judge Alex Kaczynski joining us who had a little bit different uh, opinion about the uh, death penalty but uh, you know very emotional show and when I saw your topic come up I just you know wanted to check in and and uh, you know learn a little bit about the discussion so we did a little pregame uh, we talked about some of the discriminatory practices that you were presenting when it comes to death penalty in the United States. Yeah, so one of the things that we looked at was at the United States Supreme Court case, the Furman case, and how it had identified these problems of arbitrary and discriminatory application. And then just really looking, so since we brought it back, have those problems been solved? And it, the answer is resoundingly no. It, we saw uh, the incredible 
racial discrimination continues really in every part of the death penalty in America. Um, it, that ranges from discrimination in jury selection. Prosecutors are far more likely to strike black jurors in capital cases than all other jurors. Uh, includes discrimination against the defendants based on their race and discrimination based on the race of the victim. Prosecutors are a lot more likely to seek the death penalty and jurors are more likely to impose it if the victim is white. So, oh, okay. So they're more likely to impose death penalty if the okay if the victim is white. But how about the uh, how about the the people that are convicted and receive the death penalty sentences? Who who are most likely to be put to death? Yeah. So we see the majority of people on death row in America today are people of color, and they're on death row for committing the majority committing crimes against white victims, which is not proportionate to the to the statistics about homicides in America. Yeah, I did I did read that. Uh, you know, sometimes when we have, when we do a show, I'll do a little research on the background, and that was. Uh, kind of the predominant uh, view or uh, study viewpoint uh, across many different studies was that for the most part, uh, you know, when it comes to homicides and murders, it tends to be, you know, same ethnic group versus same ethnic group, uh, is victims being the same ethnic group as, as, the, uh, as the murderer. That's right. Um, and so when we see these statistical studies that look at this question of is is there something going on? And they and they do find systemically evidence of discrimination that kind of bears out just what we see in the raw numbers. But we also, when we work on cases, and, and I've found this in numerous of my own clients' cases, when we do deep dives, so we're not looking at the forest view anymore, we're looking at the health of the individual tree there. Um, in our individual cases, we, we find really shocking evidence of, of overt intentional racist bi racial bias um, on behalf of a lot of the players, including jurors, including defense counsel, including prosecutors. Um, it, there, there is a very direct and troubling link between racial discrimination and who uh, is sentenced to death in America today. So geographic discrimination. So you were talking about that earlier. Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of people have a sense that the, the, the death penalty is racially discriminatory and maybe do not know as much the degree to which it is arbitrary. It is the function of where you commit the crime as much as anything else. Um, just there was a study done uh, in 2012 by the Death Penalty Information Center that found that just 2% of the counties produced the majority of death sentences. So while death sentences, while the majority of states have moved away and, and only a handful of states continue with executions today, even within the states that continue to use the death penalty, it's limited to a handful of counties. Um, and that is ultimately just a, a form of arbitrariness. It, it's not the nature of your crime. It's not um, your past. It's nothing about your character. It, it depends on where you commit the crime as much as anything else that drives the death penalty today. So you did say uh, when we were uh, from our earlier conversation, it's 2% of the counties that, uh, that uh, comprise of 50% of the executions. Yeah, it's 2% of the counties comprise over 50% of the new death sentences. And so that's nationwide. That's nationwide. Um, and then, you know, uh, just this last year, we saw that three counties, count one, two, three, you know, out of the, the incredible number of counties in, in the United States, three counties produced almost a third of the death sentences in the United States last year. Where, where are those counties located? Well, one of the uh, those counties are located in California. They're located in Florida. The, these um, are for year after years have really been high drivers. Southern California and Florida have been drivers of the death penalty. 
extradition. So yeah. this was uh, this was fascinating to me. I learned something. You know, I learned something new at these conferences every time I go. But uh, you know, just the extradition agreements between the United States and Canada and also Mexico, I found fascinating. So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So these extradition agreements, which the United States signed in uh, 1976, at a time when we did not use the death penalty and have the death penalty and the United States, they say that uh, and before you can extradite Canada or the United States, you need to have assurances that the person will not be subjected to the death penalty. So that's, uh, you, that's a grounds to refuse to extradite. And the way that that played out um, in Canada is really very interesting, where they had an initial court decision um, that said that under that, that treaty gave them the right to refuse extradition, but the treaty itself was silent about whether they had to refuse it. Um, and the Canadian Supreme Court initially said, no, this is up to the discretion of the Canadian government. And then later in a case called Burns, the Supreme Court of Canada reversed itself and said that actually, because of a number of problems with the death penalty, including the innocence problems, um, that it would be unconstitutional and that it would violate the Canadian constitution and that the government needed to seek assurances in any case before it extradited uh, to the United States uh, or, or to a country with a death penalty, uh, someone who was facing charges there. I think what's interesting is that uh, the, the extradition does not just apply to, say, an American citizen that, uh, that is accused of committing a murder within the United States, runs to Canada, and it doesn't just apply to them. It also applies to Canadian citizens as well. So it's both, at least in the United States, it, as it applies to the United States, it applies to both citizens and non-citizens. That's right. So, um, the, and the cases that came up, some of them were U.S. citizens who uh, were, had crossed the border into Canada. Some of them were Canadian citizens who had, who had uh, come to the United States and then returned to Canada. All, all were in Canada at the time that the United States was seeking extradition as, as Canada was sorting out this policy. So we've done a couple of shows uh, on the network about innocence projects that have uh, eventually exonerated people for crimes that they didn't commit. Uh, you know, obviously in one instance, we talked with uh, you know, Ronald Kiney, who was on, on death row, uh, but we also had, and, I, and I, please forgive me, uh, William, if I got your name wrong, William Dillon, who uh, was a guitar player, uh, learned to play guitar in prison, was serving a life sentence for a murder that he was eventually uh, exonerated from. And uh, so we've done a couple of shows on there, and you, you were talking about you know, some, some of the factors that play into perhaps some of the public opinion regarding uh, whether or not uh, death penalty is a good idea in the United States is the ratio of innocence and exonerations, you know, some of the uh, statistics there. So can we, can we discuss that just a little bit? Absolutely. So innocence continues to be a powerful driver of public opinion and, and probably the most direct evidence of the ways in which the death penalty is a failed system. Since 1976, we have exonerated, that is, we have found under very stringent criteria people innocent who were convicted of the death penalty at a, at a higher number, 155, than people we've actually executed. We've only executed 146 19, since 1976. So we have a higher exoneration rate than we have an execution rate. That's, uh, that's a pretty it's sobering and scary, too. I, I, uh, <laughs> just just processing that. And, it, you know, what I think is troubling is the fact that the extent to which that number underestimates the number of people who are innocent. So one group, of course, are the people who are innocent and remain on death row because they have not been able to have their claims heard or, or prevail on those claims. And then there are also uh, a number of 
former death row prisoners who took plea agreements um, because of the course of uh, nature of the of the options to them. They they took plea agreements to be able to be released from prison. You know, we're looking at just really an enormous error rate uh, where people who are who are innocent. And as somebody who's represented um, exonerees uh, on a really personal level, it is so troubling to imagine that experience um, and, and how, how profoundly we're failing. Well, Cassandra, I just have uh, one last question for you. You know, uh, uh, some of our listeners, you know, they're the primary legal audience for this show, but, uh, you know, some of them may have some follow-up questions. And if they, they want to reach out to you, how can they find you? Absolutely. So my, uh, the best way to get in contact with me is through email. My email address is cstubbs at aclu.org. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode, but I want to thank Cassandra Stubbs for joining us today. Thanks so much. It was my pleasure. And also, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And if you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road, Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Yeah.